Well, this morning, uh, Kathy had uh, walked into uh, my office at home and said, I have a devotion that I did this morning, and it really ministered to her, and I read it, and I thought, you know what, that's good. I'm going to share it with you, with you all this morning. Most of us, I think, know the name Emmanuel and what it means, God with us. And you think about that name and, and uh, how spiritually what that means to us as believers. But this was the devotion. It's, it's actually titled Emmanuel. And this is how it read. I was talking with a friend who is a newlywed and couldn't wait to be a parent. He and his wife are planning on praying for, uh, planning and praying for a baby. They already have names picked out. And my friend's wife isn't even pregnant. In 735 BC, the prophet Isaiah prophesied to the spiritually struggling nation of Judah, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us, Isaiah 7.14. Jesus was named some 730 years before he was born. I have heard it said that all the truths of Christmas can be stated in just three words, God with us. We tend to focus our attention on Christmas time on the human birth of Christ, but the greater focus should be on his deity, who he really is, God with us. Emmanuel means that we're not isolated from a God who sits on some distant throne. He came to be with us. He had human skin and wore human clothes. When Joseph and Mary called their son by name, it was a reminder that God was in the house, literally living under the same roof. Are you alone? Feeling afraid? Have you felt that God is far off, somberly watching you from a distance? The message of Christmas is that you don't need to be alone anymore. For Jesus has come, Emmanuel, God with us. You think about that. That every time Jesus' parents would have said to him his name, that whole thought of just God with us, the Son of God in flesh here on earth, with us, and even for us at this Christmas season that we're coming into, that's the whole reason that our God is with us. And, and so I, I pray that you're encouraged this morning, even just thinking about what we're going to uh, get into in our message this morning. And so let's, um, let's have, we're going to do something a little different this morning. This is a day for different things. I'm going to read you the narrative uh, of Jesus, uh, his, really his arrest and his trial and his death. And next week, we're going to see the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But we're actually, this is our, I had to go back and count them. This is our 75th message in the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to finish it next Sunday, chapter 28. But these last three chapters, 26 to 28, we might call them the very pinnacle of the Gospels. It's, it's, it's Jesus Christ. It's that death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. It's why we sit here this morning. It's why we have this communion table even Seth this morning, you know, God with us. He's in our life. We have an incredible salvation that he made available to us. And what we're even going to read this morning, it's the pinnacle of the Gospels. It's why, you know, we've gone through all these 75 studies leading up to these last three, and we say, this is what it's all about. This is the message 
This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I'd like to have the ushers come forward. They're going to pass out the communion to to you this morning. And I'm going to ask that you would just hold on to the cup and the bread just for a little bit. We're going to start into reading this narrative. There's going to be some pictures that you're going to see up on the screens. But we're going to partake of communion when we get to that last supper in my reading this morning. We're going to partake of it together. And so... As they are passing that out, I'm going to start reading. You can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. I know we've covered this already, but we're going to read it from this point. Chapter 26, verse 1. I titled this morning's message, The Hour Has Come. And you've heard me say a lot about that, off and on. About Jesus saying that his hour was not yet here. And he had to remind his disciples a number of times that it was not the time, but now the hour has come. And so look in your Bibles, uh, chapter 26, starting in verse 1. We read, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, and he was speaking about chapter 24 and chapter 25, which is, remember, the Olivet Discourse. It was that last main teaching of Jesus that he said this to his disciples. He says, you know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. And then in verse 3 we read, Then the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at a palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas, and they plotted to take Jesus by trickery and to kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. You see, in all of their plotting, and all of their planning to take Jesus and to have him put to death, they knew that the timing couldn't be now. You see, the Passover was a time of celebration. It was a time for the people to gather around and to be celebrating. It wasn't a time to be arresting Jesus and seeking to have him put to death. But Jesus had other plans. You see, it all had to do with the Son of God and the perfect timing that he had already marked out that he was going to be crucified on Passover. But while this plotting was going on amongst the religious leaders, we know that Jesus was back there in a village of Bethany and he was being anointed there for his burial. Incredible. The world didn't even know. His disciples didn't even know. We read that when Jesus was in Bethany in verse 6 at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask, a very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on Jesus' head as he sat there at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant we're told. They they said, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, We're told she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Jesus knew. The disciples didn't. They didn't get it. But Jesus knew what was taking place. We read on about Judas, that he got with the religious leaders. And he agreed that he was going to betray our Lord. 
We read in verse 14, Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot. He went to the chief priest and he said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. And so from that time, Judas sought opportunity to betray him. Actually, if you look at Luke's gospel, and you'll see me, I'm going to jump around to the other gospels a little bit to give us a little more insight. But Luke's gospel tells us that at this point, it's when Satan entered into Judas. You see, this was something that even our Lord knew on this particular day, that Satan himself was going to possess Judas, even in the betrayal. But then we see that Jesus now was about to gather his disciples together for this, what's called the Last Supper. And we read in verse 17, it says, Now on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is also called Passover, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And Jesus said, Go into into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. And now as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say, Lord, is it I? And he answered and he said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? And he said, You have said it. Luke's gospel tells us this. It says on that same night, as they were sitting there at that last supper, that there was strife going on between the disciples as to which of them would be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That was going on at that last supper. Who's going to be the greatest? In your kingdom? This strife going on amongst them. And and really one of the most intimate times that Jesus was sitting there with his disciples. There's strife amongst them. John's gospel tells us on this evening that Jesus, that he stood up from supper. We're told that he laid aside his outer garment and he took a towel And he girded himself and he began to wash the disciples' feet. That also happened that night. He told his disciples to do likewise unto one another. They didn't even understand all the implications of what was taking place there. Here's the Son of God. Just laying himself as a servant being that example to his own disciples and telling them you need to do likewise, just like we should do with one another. Serve one another. Lay down your life for one another. We come this morning to the communion table, something that the Lord instructed us to continue to do until the day we partake of it with him in heaven. This is something we do once a month here at Calvary right now. Just once a month, first week of the month, we partake of communion so that we won't forget, so that we'll remember, so that we'll look back and we'll look forward and we'll look within and we'll say, God, you want to do something in me this way. It's not a ritual. It's something that I want to have communion with you. I want to have fellowship with you. You see, that's what communion is. It's fellowship with one another at this level, right here as the body of Christ. But it's also having fellowship with the living God at this level. Look what he's done for us.
And so we're going to partake of communion and we're going to have the worship team play as in a couple play a couple more worship songs. And I'm going to read this account to you and then we're going to have these worship songs together and it'll be your time for you to sit before the Lord. And I just I I would ask that you would just really look within and you would ask the Lord to bring to the surface of your mind and your heart areas of your life that you need to get right. That you needed to lay it out before the Lord. I do that when I partake of communion. I ask the Lord, you know, Lord, show me how good of a husband I am. Show me areas in my marriage that I could make better. Lord, help me and forgive me for not always being the best father to my children. And Lord, make me a better father. Show me those areas of my life where I fall short. An employer, an employee, and the list goes on and on of areas of our life that this is the time as believers that we want to get our hearts right. We want to say, God, work something and forgive me. Because see, his blood continues to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We read that on that night, in verse 26... As they were sitting there and they were reclining and they were all eating this Passover meal, that Jesus took bread. He blessed and he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and he said, Take eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And then it says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so let's worship the Lord. You may not worship with your words right now, but as the worship team is leading us in worship, Lay your heart out before the Lord. As a matter of fact, it might be better if you don't sing so that you can really just think in your heart where you are at with the Lord this morning and let God have his way in your heart. That's what communion's about. Let's worship the Lord. We're told that after they had had this Passover meal, which is something that they had done every year, that they, Jesus instituted this new covenant into the part of this meal. He, he, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. These were new words. Something that the Lord knew was going to be fulfilled even this very night as Jesus was going to be arrested. He was going to go to the cross. He's going to make a provision and a way. He was coming as Redeemer. This is the pinnacle of what it's all about. He made a way for us to have life, to have forgiveness. And we're told that that night in verse 30, that when he had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, the place where Jesus was going to pray to his Father. We read in Romans chapter 5, Paul said this, he said, For if by one man's offense, speaking about Adam, He says, death reigned through one man, death reigned through one. But then he says this, much more those who receive abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, speaking of Adam, judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation. Even so, 
through one man's righteousness and his righteous act, the free gift will come to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. It abounded much more. With all of our sin, with all of our failure, with all of those things, His grace abounded. It just flooded over your sin. And it continues to do that day in and day out, even when we don't even acknowledge it, even when we don't even see what's happening. His grace overfloods your sin by His precious blood day in and day out. That's something to rejoice about right here. Praise the Lord what Jesus Christ has accomplished. And so... We're going to continue on. The worship team can go um, have a seat. We're going to continue on in this narrative. We, back in verse 31 to 35, after they had gotten up in that upper room and made their way out, they were heading towards the Mount of Olives. And we pick it back up in verse 31. It says, then Jesus said to his disciples, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to Jesus, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all of the disciples. Luke's gospel tells us in chapter 22, verse 31, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Remember our message, be careful what you say. It was this same night that Jesus said to his disciples in John's gospel, chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions or dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. This is all happening on that night as they're getting ready to make their way to Gethsemane. We also read in John 15, verse 3, Jesus says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. Remember I talked about Peter walking at a distance as he was arrested in the garden that night. Abiding is walking close to Christ. He's telling his disciples, you need to stay close to me. You need to abide in me, just like we need to daily Abide in Christ. Stay close to the Lord. It's what will keep you from being tripped up. It's it's what will keep you strong in your walk with Christ. Abide in me and I in you. In John 16, 7, 
We also read something else that Jesus said to his disciples that night. He says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. You see, Jesus knew where he was going. He knew that he was going to be leaving this world and leaving them, but he also knew that he was going to send them the helper, the Holy Spirit, the one that came and dwelled inside of you the day you gave your life to Jesus Christ. You became born again, and his spirit came and lived inside of you. But he also gives us that power to be able to overcome and and to have victory over sin. The work of God's Holy Spirit, he says, if I go away, then I'll be sending my Holy Spirit He's not only going to live in you, but He's going to be upon you and He's going to give you the power to be able to say no to sin and to follow after me. We also know from John's Gospel, chapter 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. We read that as Jesus was there that night, that Jesus spoke these words. He lifted up his eyes to heaven in front of his disciples and he says, Father, the hour has come. He knew it. He knew that it was right there at the door. The hour has come. He says, glorify your son that your son also may be glorified. And in that prayer of John chapter 17, Jesus prayed to his father to glorify him. He also prayed for his disciples that he was sitting there with that night. And he also prayed for all believers of all time. He prayed that, and that includes you and I. John chapter 17, Jesus 2,000 years ago was lifting you up before the Father and praying for you. That evening, after this very intimate time, this time of prayer and all these things that were going on. Jesus gets up with his disciples. He leaves that upper room and he makes his way now to the garden. We know that the agony in the garden that Jesus experienced. We, we, we get a glimpse of a little bit of that. And I read to you out of Isaiah 53 of really probably more what was going on in the garden that night. We read in verse 36, then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and I pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. Luke 22.44 says that Jesus, being in agony, prayed more earnestly. and, and, And the sweat that was on his face was as were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This was a spiritual agony that our Lord was going through that night in that garden. In verse 39, we read that Jesus went a little further and he fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then he came to the disciples and he found them asleep. And he said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and he prayed saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And so he left them and he went away again and he prayed a third time, saying the same words. And then he came to his disciples and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. 
The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus, that night in the garden, was arrested. And in verse 47, we read, And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, they came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. And immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? And then they came and they laid hands on Jesus and they took him. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and he drew his sword. He struck the servant of the high priest and he cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the disciples, Have you come out? as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me. I sat daily with you teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all of this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Luke's gospel in chapter 22 tells us Peter that night was the one who pulled out his sword. And he swung, probably trying to cut his head off, but he only hit his ear, and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant, and Jesus kneels down and picks that ear up and puts it on the side of his head, and a miracle was done. He just restored that servant in front of all of them. Could you imagine what that even looked like? And could you imagine? You would think that they'd go, wow! I mean, that they would really get it, and they didn't. In John 18, 4, we read, it says that when the soldiers came out that night, that Jesus walked up to them and said, whom do you seek? Here's Jesus walking towards those 600 men that came out to arrest him. And he's the one saying to them, who do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, I am he. And Judas also, who betrayed him, stood with them. And then we're told, as soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and they fell to the ground. Just with his words. It knocked them off there. They didn't even know what hit them. They just fell backwards. This was all happening in the garden. You have to read the other gospels to see all the things that were transpiring that night. We pick up this narrative in verse 57 with Jesus coming before the council. And those who had laid hold of Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and he sat with the servants to see the end. In John's Gospel, we read this in chapter 18, verse 13. It says, For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, speaking of Annas. It tells us in John's Gospel that he first went to Annas, and then he was taken to Caiaphas from there. And now it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient, and this is what he says, that one man should die for the people. That's what Jesus was doing. He's speaking for something of the Lord, and it's true that he was there to die for the people. Verse 59. Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council, they sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. 
but we're told that they found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, we're told again, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to Jesus, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witness? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, He is deserving of death. And so they spat in his face and they beat him. Others struck him with the palms of their hands saying, Prophesy to his Christ, who is the one who struck you? And then we see Peter in verse 69. Now Peter, he's sitting outside in this courtyard of Caiaphas' palace. And a servant girl came up to Peter saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you're saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, I do not know the man. And a little later, those who stood by came, came up and said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for your speech betrays you. And then he began to curse and to swear, saying, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, Peter, you will deny me three times. So he went out and he wept bitterly. In chapter 27, verse 1, we see that when morning came, when that early morning came, it says that all the chief priests and the elders of the people, they were plotting against Jesus now to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and they delivered him now to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas's betrayer, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful, we're told. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. And so Judas then throws down the pieces of silver into the temple And he departed, and we're told that he went out and he hung himself. Tragic ending. One that was a follower of the Lord for three years. One that even the other disciples didn't know that there was any difference in him. He came across to everyone that he was a follower of Jesus, but he really wasn't. You see, we can fool man but we can never fool God. But this remorse that Judas Iscariot felt, it wasn't true repentance. You see, he was just remorseful that a righteous man was, that what he had done and how he had caused that. But it was just remorse. It's like getting caught when you do something wrong, but there's no real repentance. You see, real repentance in heart is a change of direction. For us just to to go before God, you know, on a daily basis and God crack tears and say, God, forgive me. But it's just remorse. It's just kind of an outward, God, would you forgive me? Without an inward change of heart. That's hypocrisy. God sees it. There is no real repentance here with Judas Iscariot. 
He was remorseful, and it led even to him taking his own life. But we're told in verse 6, but the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and they brought, they bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. And therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed them. Have you noticed as we've been reading through there how many times it says that it was a fulfillment of prophecy as it was written? Because all of this in detail is happening like the prophets foretold in the life of Christ. The hour has come and it was being now fulfilled. We come now to the trial in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, Pontius Pilate. And the governor asked Jesus saying, are you the king of the Jews? And so Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, we're told that he answered nothing. And then Pilate said to Jesus, Do you not hear how many things they are testifying against you? But Jesus answered him not one word, so that the governor, we're told, marveled greatly. You see, he wasn't used to having somebody stand before him that was being accused of these crimes, these things that they called crimes, and not open their mouth and not be begging for mercy. Here's our Lord standing before the man that held life and death in his hands, and he opened not his mouth. He knew exactly why he stood before this man. It was predetermined that he would stand before this governor. And Jesus was confident that his hour had come. And so he opened out his mouth and it caused this governor to marvel. He's not even defending himself. And now in verse 15, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom he wished they could do that on a, on a yearly basis. It's like what our president does when he pardons people. Here, the governor has the right to be able to pardon whoever he chooses to do that with. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner that was there called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus, who was called Christ? He gave them the option. For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. Here's even the governor knowing that it was wrong motives. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, Have nothing to do with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Husbands, listen to your wives. (laughs) Listen to your wife. I have suffered many things in this dream. But we're told, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all said to him, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. 
And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus to the praetorium. And they gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on Jesus. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they they bowed the knee before him and they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they spat on him and they took the reed and they struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. The hour has come. Jesus now is being led away to the cross. Something that he knew was coming. Jesus was going to spend six hours on the cross. He was going to be hung on that cross at nine o'clock in the morning and taken down from that cross at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We read in verse 32, Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear the cross of Jesus. The Romans that were walking along as Jesus was carrying that portion of the cross, heading out to Golgotha, calls upon Simon, you take his cross. Jesus was probably physically even hardly able to even go forward. And so they called upon Simon to carry the cross the remaining distance. Verse 33, and when they had come to the place called Golgotha, that is to, to say the place of a skull, they gave Jesus sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots that it, here it is again, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And then sitting down, they watched over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. And this is what read above Jesus' head. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. We actually read in John's Gospel that it was written in Hebrew. It was written in Greek, and it was written in Latin. So that everybody that walked along that roadside and looked up at those crosses that were on that hill could read that accusation against Jesus and against the other men that were hanging on the right and the left. Every tongue could read it and know what it said. This was a way for the Romans to shame those that were hanging there on the cross. As Jesus hung on the cross for these six hours... We have recorded in the Gospels the last seven sayings of Jesus. It's not always easy to put them in the exact order, but this is one order in which these are the words that Jesus spoke that day in that six-hour time frame on the cross. We find the first in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, verse 34. Jesus said these words. He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Incredible words. For us to even take on board even this morning. Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they do. And they divided his garments, they cast lots, and the people stood on. But even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. And then we read in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, verse 39, 
Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Jesus, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed just, uh, indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to that man that was hanging next to him on the cross, assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Words of hope. Words of comfort, ones that we hold on to, where the Lord has told us what our end and where we're going to be someday. Here he is in all of his grace and mercy, saying to that thief on the cross, Today you're going to be with me in paradise because you simply believed in me. In John chapter 19, verse 25, we read, and it tells us, who was standing there at the cross that day. We're told that it was Jesus' mother that was standing there. And his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and also Mary Magdalene was there. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple, which is speaking of John, because it says the disciple whom he loved, he saw John standing by and he said to to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, he said to John, John, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. In verse 45, we pick up the second half of Jesus' time on the cross. This is from 12 o'clock now to 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We read in verse 45, now from the sixth hour, that's noontime, until the ninth hour, which is 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there was darkness over all the land. This was a work of God. This is something God, he just caused a blackness to come over the whole, a diffusing of the, the sun, and it just became black over the whole land. And about the ninth hour, we're told that Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In this hour of darkness, as the Father turned His eye away from the Son as He bore our sin, Jesus cries out those words to His Father. We're told in verse 47 that some of those who stood by when they heard that, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and he took a sponge and he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed. And he lifted it up there for Jesus to drink. And the rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, we're told. And it was at that point that he yielded up his spirit. Notice that he gave it up. No one took his life. He yielded it up in the moment, in that hour, and in that time after he had bore our sin, he yielded up his spirit. We read in John's Gospel in chapter 19, verse 28, that after this, Jesus, knowing that all these things were now accomplished, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, he says this, I thirst. That's the fifth thing that Jesus said in that time on the cross. He says, I thirst. Which shows us his humanity. Here's Jesus. He is the Son of God. He's God in flesh. But he also was housed in a body of flesh and blood like yours and I, mine. And, and he felt the pain. He felt the thirst. I thirst. And then we read the sixth thing that Jesus said in John 1930 
So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he says, it is finished. And bowing his head, we're told that he gave up his spirit. The final words of Jesus are recorded in Luke's gospel, chapter 23, verse 46. It says, then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with these words, we're told, he breathed his last. Jesus gave it up for us. And with these last words, we read back in Matthew's gospel, verse 51, that at those words, and as soon as Jesus shouted those words and breathed that last breath, that behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Remember that veil that separated the holy place from the holies of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sat behind the veil. And just with those very words, when it was finished, when it was done, when he yielded up his spirit, we're told that that veil, which could have been up 15 to 18 inches thick, was torn from top to bottom supernaturally by God. God literally tore that veil in two from top to bottom, showing us that man now has access. It was only the priests that could go behind that veil one time of year. That was it. Now you and I have access. It is finished. And we actually can actually go behind the veil. We can actually have communion. You can pray and God hears your prayer. Incredible. We're told that the earth quaked at that moment. Probably a massive earthquake. And we're told that the rocks were split. And the graves were opened. And Matthew's account tells us this unique story that's not found in the other Gospels. It says many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and they appeared to many. And so when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, it says that they feared greatly, saying, truly this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Joses, the mother of Zebedee's sons. And then we come to the burial. Verse 57. Now when evening had come, There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and he laid it in a new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Incredible. An incredible account for us to see just who was there and how all this... And and can you imagine as they just shut that tomb... Lost hope. We had so much hope that this was going to turn out differently. We, 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 we were just hoping that he was going to set up his kingdom here on earth and we were, he was going to deliver us. Our Messiah had come and now he's dead. The Romans crucified him. He's in the tomb. They rolled the stone. It was, it, it, it's done. Lost hope. 
But the Romans and really the religious leaders had heard all the talk about Jesus coming out of that grave. And we read in verse 62 that on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. And they they went to him and they said, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver, here they are calling him, how that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. And so the last deception will be worse than the first. They wanted to make sure. Put guards out there. Guard that tomb. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. And so they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. I've been to one of two places that they believe is the possible place that Jesus' body was laid there in Jerusalem. Pretty incredible. If it is the tomb, there's one other location. There's people that have different opinions, but I've been to that tomb That's actually a a real photograph of the place that they believe, some believe, is the tomb that Jesus was laid. The only thing that has been changed on that image is that you see that stone that is rolled in front of it. That is no longer there today. You can see that wall that is built up to the left. That's made to, you know, current time. But you see behind that stone, there's an opening that goes in there. It's believed that this could be the tomb that the body of Jesus was laid in. But when those guards were set, there's actually on the side of the opening of that uh, opening going into that tomb, there's a piece of metal that sticks out of the rock that was hammered in in there that they believe could have been where the seal was that sealed that tomb. They've done dating on that metal and they date it back to the time of Christ. You see, they would have taken this, probably this wax seal and they would have sealed that tomb. It's why you see this thing going across there like that. It may have looked different than that. But they wanted to make sure that this whole thinking of Jesus coming out of the tomb, that that wasn't going to happen. And so they sealed the tomb. They took Roman soldiers and they placed them outside that tomb. They were going to have to stay there for that period of time to make sure that this was not going to come to pass, as Jesus had said. Secure the tomb. Seal it. If that seal was broken by a guard or anybody else, it would have meant their life. They would have been killed. You don't break a seal that is put onto something like that. The Messiah of Israel, the Son of David, the Son of Man, the Son of God, Emmanuel with us, was dead completely dead, in the tomb, wrapped, placed into that tomb. The stone was rolled in front of it. The tomb was sealed by the Romans. A guard was set. And then that brings us to chapter 28. But we're not going to cover that today. That'll be next week. Chapter 28. We might call this the greatest chapter in the Bible. Think about it. Without the resurrection, without that hope of the resurrection as a believer, 
Let's just all pack it in and, and go home. Because it's, it's what our whole Christian faith is about. He's given you eternal life. He's given you the hope of the resurrection. If that same spirit that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead dwells inside of you, the Bible says he will give life to your body by his spirit that dwells in you. He'll raise you up. He'll give you life. He'll bring you back to life again. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. It's the hope of everyone that calls Jesus their Lord and Savior. We hope you have enjoyed today's study. For more information on teachings, events, worship times, and location, please visit our website, ccfwinstonsalem.com. From Pastor Greg and all of us at Calvary Chapel Fellowship, Thank you for listening and being part of our study through God's Word.